Oh, good evening, and thank you for coming to be with us. If you could turn to Ephesians chapter 4, I'll first of all take a few minutes to explain why we never seem to be getting very far away from Ephesians chapter 4 these days. The church in Scotland, to say the least, has seen better days. There is not a soul alive today in Scotland who has known a time where there have been less evangelical Christians in this land than there are right now. And it doesn't stop there. In many churches, there's a disproportionate number of older people, meaning that as time takes its inevitable toll on the church, unless something changes, the situation will get worse. The majority of people in this most educated of cities profess no religion at all and maybe on a good day with generous counting 2% of the population is made up of evangelical Christians. It's not surprising then that when you look on a scene like that that lots and lots of ideas come forth about how the church might change its fortunes. We've had more than our fair share of experimental fads in the evangelical church. Uh, We were told churches needed to be entirely seeker-sensitive. The way to get people in is to give them what they want. Then we were told that churches needed to embrace post-modernity. The way to get people in was to stop focusing so much on truth. And for better or worse, those ideas have fallen by the wayside by and large. But you could easily find a hundred more. And not everything about those ideas is bad, but just pause for a moment and consider what things must have been like for the early church. First century, what was it like for the early church? I mean, they were a small band of believers. They did not fit into their culture, and in fact, they were persecuted by their culture. They had no footprint to speak of. They certainly didn't have buildings, and they certainly had no cultural influence. And we wouldn't dare to say that they were more represented in their society than we are in ours. However, the church survived. More than that, the church grew. More than that, in so many ways, the church flourished. And it's amazing to me that there is such a a gravitational pull towards new models of church growth. Because it seems like there's a suspicion that the Bible really is outdated. That the New Testament could never speak to our cultural nuances and what a church needs today. When in actual fact, what we have in the New Testament is direction that was given to a struggling minority. Which was the early church. We have the timeless word of God. And as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've been faced with this time and time again, that Paul keeps challenging the natural perception of what the church is, the natural idea that it's just small, non-influential, insignificant. And he keeps coming back in that letter to tell us that, you know, lift up your eyes, guys. The church is something glorious. It's God's great design. He's putting on display his wisdom. This is a foretaste for the world of just the future that lies when Christ comes to reign in glory. 
And one of the reasons why we keep getting stuck in Ephesians 4, that's my long way around to getting back to that, is because when you come to chapter 4, Paul begins to present how the church needs to function if it's going to live up to this glorious status for the church to be the church. And as elders in this church, we were struck by how much we as a church would benefit from keeping on learning these lessons by just taking a bit of time to look a bit more into this pattern of how a church functions that Paul lays out in Ephesians 4. So we're planning to have about five weeks just digging a little deeper into the elements of this pattern that he outlines so that we can consider together how a good church functions. So I'm going to read with you Ephesians 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 16 even though I'm really only going to zero in on one and a half verses. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. This is the word of God and this is how Paul tells the Ephesian church that the church can truly be the church. How it will live up to its high calling and its grand design of being God's masterpiece. And so the first point we're going to zero in on is something that's in our news a lot at the moment. And it's really to answer the question, what makes a good leader? And if you look at this in general terms, you always come across the same buzzwords of what makes a good leader. Vision, communication, integrity, decisiveness. But more crucial for us tonight is to ask, what makes for a good church leader? Well, I did a little bit of research Where else would you go rather than churchleaders.com to find out what makes for a good church leader? They list 10 characteristics. They see value in others. They share information. (laughs) 
They have above average character. I love that one. Um, They use influence for the good of others. They're skillful and competent. They're not afraid for others to succeed. They serve others expecting nothing in return. They continue to learn. They remain accessible, approachable, and accountable. And they are visionary. Now, I don't know anything about that organization. I deliberately didn't look into it any further. Because for all of the merits of that list, in their article, they didn't refer to the Bible once. And in actual fact, a lot of those headings don't mean anything, really. Is visionary means diddly squat. And that's what's all too common in church life. When it comes to thinking about church leadership and the qualities and the priorities that should mark it out, too often the church settles for pragmatism or we settle for what the world around us tells us is a good model of leadership. But the New Testament gives us so much more to go on than that. And so tonight in this first part of the series, How a Good Church Functions, we're considering this subject of God-given leadership God-given leadership, and particularly focusing in on verses 11 and 12. And really my first point is actually to take the title as the first point, that true leaders are Christ's gift to the church. Uh, We've been through this already in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, where Paul tells us that Christ, when he ascended after his victorious resurrection, he ascended back into heaven to the Father's right hand, and he gave something to the church And you have that uh, quotation there from Psalm 68. Uh, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In a sense, uh, Paul wants us to see that everyone has been given grace. He mentions that in verse 7. That is that each individual has been uniquely uh, gifted. And we're going to see that in one of the coming weeks as well. But in particular... He tells us that Jesus Christ has given gifted individuals to the church. And there they are listed in verse 11, or at least the ones he has in mind to make this point. Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. When I preached on this passage last month, I pointed out that the one thing that these different categories of people have in common is that they are all ministers of the word of God. That is their role. They are bearers of, declarers of the word of God. The apostles and the prophets were recipients of God's new revelation. Paul tells us earlier in this letter that God revealed to the apostles and prophets things that had never before been revealed. Namely, that the church would bring together Jews and Gentiles into the same body with Christ as the head. No one had ever been given the glimpse of that sort of unity that would come about by the work of Christ. And indeed, it's on that foundation, he tells us, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that the church is being built. Uh, I feel like just adding that it's a foundation that was laid nearly 2,000 years ago, and that we should not be expecting new revelation to be still given. That new revelation has been recorded for us in the Bible. Rely upon it, build upon it, enjoy it. You also have in that list the evangelists who carried the gospel to new frontiers. Typically, they traveled, taking the gospel where it had not been heard. They were, and they still are, the missionaries of the church. And so you see, those first three groups, apostles, prophets, evangelists, their ministry wasn't restricted to one local church. They served the wider church. 
But when we come to this last category that we're going to focus in on, then you have Christ's gift to specific local churches. The shepherds and teachers, as the ESV puts it. And though it refers to shepherds and teachers, you can see in the way that the sentence is put together that these two terms are very closely related. Uh, The evidence is that there's no the before the word teachers. You see that? There's no the before the word teachers, whereas there's a the before each of the other terms, which leads many to conclude that this is actually one term, shepherd teachers, something like that. Um, And at the very least, all seem to be agreed that Paul wants us to see a close connection between these two terms. And you'll see that, um, as I mentioned, the ESV, which I'm using, uses the word shepherds, shepherds and teachers, whereas most translations go with pastors. And just to clear this up for you, there's no difference in those words. Uh, Pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. That's where it comes from. And so if we're asking the question, how does a good church function, then this is very important for us to recognize that Christ himself has given a gift to the church. And he's given leaders to the church. And we need to recognize this not just in the the individual sense that we look out for gifted individual people, but to actually step back and recognize that this is Christ's pattern for the church. This is how he has ordained that the church should function. This is how it will be built up through uh, using individuals whom he has given to the church to minister the word, those who will serve as these shepherds and teachers. And if this is God's design, then my second point is an inevitable follow-on. So if we see that true leaders are Christ's gift to the church, then we have to conclude the church needs shepherds. And in particular, we're going to look at this linking of these terms. The church needs shepherds who can teach. Now, if ever there was an area of church life that was fraught with confusion over its terminology, it's this one. I mean, just look across the different Christian traditions and try to make sense of bishops, presbyters, ministers, Kirk Sessions, moderators, and so on. Where would you even begin? Well, the New Testament, you find that there are three different words used to describe a local church's leaders. Sometimes we read of overseers. Other times we read of elders. And still other times we read, in particular in our verse here, pastors or shepherds. But despite these three different terms being used, they're actually used interchangeably to describe the same role. And I'm going to turn to a passage that's going to show that to you um, and will help us to make some other points as well. You'll find this in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he sets the scene for us in verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Paul had the elders of the church, there's our first term, brought to meet him for what he thought would be one last time. And from verse 19, Paul then recounts for them his example that he lived out in front of them. I mean, Paul had lived in Ephesus for two years Uh, He really gave himself to this church, and he, in effect, wants to commission these elders to follow his example. We're going to come back to his specific example in a moment. But I want you to turn to verse 28, where Paul gives these elders the directive of what he looks for them to do. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You see, there's one of our other words. To care for the church of God. And again, some of your translations may reveal this literally. That is, has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So there we've, we've demonstrated as we read that, that these three terms are used interchangeably. The elders were called, and then Paul calls them overseers, and he tells them to do the work of a shepherd. Uh, and so it's the case that when uh, we think of these terms, that we can legitimately use them interchangeably. And so it's the case that every elder in the church is also a pastor in the church. This church has nine pastors. Now, we also see here why the church needs shepherds and what Paul says to these Ephesian elders. His concern for them, uh, just as it was his concern in the letter to the Ephesians that we're thinking of, was that, as he puts it in verse 29, fierce wolves will come into the church or will even arise from among their own number. They will be speaking what is false and they'll lead members of the church, disciples of Christ, will lead them away. And the imagery is strong, isn't it? Fierce wolves. Why do fierce wolves lead sheep astray? Well, for no other reason than to devour them. These are the stakes that are at play. And so this is what it means for elders to shepherd the church. It's to be alert to this danger. So the way in which the shepherds are to care for the flock is by prioritizing the ministry of the word. I told you that Paul first gave the Ephesian elders his example of how he had shepherded the church in Ephesus while he was with them for two years. Well, let's now read those words and just marvel at what the work of shepherding a local church demands. Um, verse 18 of Acts 20. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then in effect, he says, now you go on, keep on doing that. What was he doing? 
Even though it was uncomfortable at times, he was declaring, he was teaching, he was testifying to the gospel, he was proclaiming the kingdom, he was declaring to them the whole counsel of God. So it's little wonder that when Paul rounds off his plea to those Ephesian elders in verse 32, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. And isn't this just the pattern that we were reading of in Ephesians 4? That Christ has given gifted individuals who minister the word of God for the building up, for the grounding of the church in order to protect it from drifting away from the true gospel. This is why when you read the qualification for elders, you find the list of qualities that Paul tells Timothy should mark an elder. One of them is that he must be able to teach. You find a similar list in Paul's letter to Titus, in Titus chapter 1, where he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is an inescapable part of what it means to be a shepherd in the church. It does not mean that every elder, every shepherd must be a preacher, but that they hold to and that they can defend the truth. And that may be in a one-on-one situation, or it may indeed be before the whole church. But in short, an elder must know what to do with the Bible. And there's so many misconceptions, aren't there, about what church leaders are there for, or even what church staff are there for. And I think perhaps the biggest misconception is that they are there to do the work of serving in the church on my behalf. That's not really what they're there for. We go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and we see that Christ has given the shepherds and teachers, what for? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The result of having Christ-given leaders in the church is that you, as a member of the church, will be better equipped to serve. You will be better equipped and able to build up the church. And so if you're ever tempted to think of your elders as mere managers, mere administrators, mere accountants, even though a church needs all of those things, elders are to care for the spiritual welfare of the church. And they can only do that as they minister the word. Now that's not the entirety of it, but... The emphasis that Paul's bringing us here in Ephesians 4 is it's word-driven ministry. And so if you're an elder here tonight or you're an aspiring elder, and I hope there's lots of those here tonight, this is the primary task. Not the only one. Not every elder will share the same emphasis in how they do that task, but this is why you're there. This is why I'm there. To make sure that the gospel is maintained. To make sure that it's being brought to bear on the lives of the members of the church. Because that's what the word of God tells us builds up a church. Without it, yeah, we could have a good going group of people, but what they believe and why they meet could be anyone's guess. Church members... In a sense, I want to say, settle for nothing less from your elders and submit to them as they look to do this precious work among you. Encourage them 
Don't weigh them down with stuff that really isn't what they're called to deal with. And respond positively, readily, as they look to lead you in that way. I've got one more thing to say. It seems that in Ephesians 4, verse 11, Paul is actually being even more specific than I'm being here. I mean to say that the church needs shepherds who can teach. But in a sense, there's no other kind of shepherd. That's one of the basic qualifications. He must be able to teach. Rather, when, when Paul says here that shepherd teachers, he's, he's surely pointing out that not every elder is equally gifted in every area. And that some were to be specifically recognized as shepherd teachers. And I think you find this more explicitly in Paul's first letter to Timothy, which uh, is worth us looking at just for a second. First Timothy chapter 5. And I'm reading verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now we wonder, what does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain the next verse. For, the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages Some elders were particularly recognized by the church as those who would labor in preaching and teaching. And the church would financially support them to allow them to do that labor. In a sense, if this is so foundational for the church's operation, then what more important thing could a church invest in? And also, and this is my challenge to you, this idea is implicit as well in Paul's instructions to Timothy. Timothy, we read in the book of Acts, it seems he's full-time in gospel work, and he is specifically allocated to the church, probably in Ephesus. And Paul writes those two letters, First and Second Timothy, to help Timothy to do his work there and to set certain things in order. But the manner of which he was to do the work was the very thing he was to pass on to others, that they might do it. So my challenge to you is read through both of Paul's letters to Timothy And take note of the number of times that Paul instructs Timothy in relation to teaching the Word. I mean, for me, as I've done that in this past week, it would be no exaggeration to say, that's what Timothy was there for. There he is as a shepherd teacher in the local church, and he's there to teach the Word. And I suppose it's no accident even that when churches have limited resources, uh, they can perhaps only afford to, uh, to have one staff member or even a, a part-time staff member. Well, the good churches tend to prioritize the ministry of the Word, don't they? Because all the other stuff is floundering if that's not in place. In preparing to think through tonight's message, I was reminded of a book that I was given a shot of the first week that I started here in Hebron. I did give it back. Someone then subsequently bought me a copy of my own. And it was by Alistair Begg. The copy that was bought for me was signed as well, by the way, which was nice. But it's a book by Alistair Begg about pastoral ministry. And he writes in that book about the sort of convictions that drove him, along with Derek Prime, to write that book. And the first of those convictions, he says, is this. Christ's special gift to his church is the gift of pastors and teachers. 
a conviction based upon understanding Ephesians 4 verse 11 to mean that he endows individuals with both gifts. They may or may not be set apart by God's people to give all of their time to these tasks. Where church financial resources are not available, some will support themselves partly or completely. And that seems to be what's being got at here, that there were some who were just particularly recognized. Now, when it comes to leading the church, one thing that I've not said, which I have to say, is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the one who leads his church. If we ever forget that, we're in the biggest danger of all. We could have the most uh, well-ordered structures, but if we forget that it's Christ who is head of the church, we lose everything. But the implication of that is that, therefore, it is Jesus Christ who gets to decide how the church will be the church. Often, as Christians, we have good, strong convictions about our personal privileges in Christ. The importance of personal Bible reading. The fact that every believer in Christ has direct access into the presence of God through Christ that the Holy Spirit is the illuminator of the human mind to help us understand Scripture. But I think sometimes that can lead us to think that the church is just a coming together of autonomous beings. Whereas this picture that Paul's painted for us, even in Ephesians 4, is that the church is a single body. And it is a body that is to be growing. And here is how Christ has ordered it, so that it will grow. And the bottom line for all of us is that we need the input of others. We need to submit to the ministry of others. We need gifted individuals to faithfully and reliably bring the word of God to the church. In 1548, John Calvin published his commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Here's what he says in and around these verses. What is more excellent than to produce the true and complete perfection of the church? And yet this work, so admirable and divine, is here declared by the apostle to be accomplished by the external ministry of the word. That those who neglect this instrument should hope to become perfect in Christ is utter madness. Paul expressly states that according to the command of Christ, no real union or perfection is attained but by the outward preaching. We must therefore allow ourselves to be ruled and taught by men. This is the universal rule which extends equally to the highest and to the lowest. The church is the common mother of all the godly which bears, nourishes and brings up children to God, kings and and peasants alike, And this is done by the ministry. Those who neglect or despise this order choose to be wiser than Christ. Those are challenging words. A good church functions by recognizing and submitting to God-given leadership. And the aspect of that emphasized in Ephesians 4, as we'll see more of in coming weeks, is the ministry of the Word of God. But I say this, be careful what you wish for. Because whenever any local church prioritizes the word, as I trust this church will always do, then there is a greater onus on all of us to submit to 
and to respond to that word. We leave ourselves without any excuse. So I want to encourage you tonight, give thanks tonight for your shepherds. They are men who love the Lord Jesus. And I urge you tonight to submit to them as they look to lead you in the way of Christ, in the way of the gospel, in the way of truth. Be in confidence that this is what Christ uses to build his church. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you. Father, we want to thank you that the church is something glorious. Father, we pray for forgiveness when we think otherwise of the church, when we think of it as simply going to church. And we want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gift have gifted individuals to be shepherd teachers in the local church. We thank you for those who have taught us and who do teach us. We pray, Father, you would encourage them in their work, that you would inspire them to to keep on fanning into flame the gift that is within them. And we pray, Father, that in the life of this church there would always be a, a hunger and an appetite for the Word of God. We pray for the shepherds of this church with so many things on their plate at the moment, so many uncertainties as they look to the future. But we thank you for the certainty that the church will always be Christ's church, that he will always be the head of that church, and that he, as he has promised, will build that church. And we claim that promise for ourselves here in Hebron. We ask, Father, that you would give wisdom. We ask, Father, that you would renew every day the commitment of your shepherds here to the ministry of the word and that you would be pleased to build your church that it might grow in maturity into all the fullness of Christ. Because, Father, we recognize that the day is too urgent for us to be engaged in anything else. We pray that the witness from this church would reach, would reach into our families, our workplaces, into the streets around this building, that the power of the gospel would make its impact on this city as your people rededicate themselves to the word of God. Oh, Father, we just entrust all of this into your hands. And we ask for your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen.